and, in fact, much of uh, contemporary Buddhist wisdom could be seen to flow from two uh, basic, profound insights. And these two insights are associated with two kinds of practices. And uh, it's not like you do one or the other. They both work together. But uh, I think if you understand the nature of these two insights, the value of each, and where they're not so uh, useful, it can be quite helpful in our practice. So the first profound insight uh, that is frequently provides the foundation of Buddhist wisdom is the nature of impermanence, which is, the Buddha said that all things or phenomena in the minds that we accumulate or acquire, we seek out, are undergoing constant change, that the mind itself is constantly in a state of flux. And in a lot of different suttas, he talks about if you observe your mind and break it down into the basic components of your thoughts, your feelings, your body sensations, the sensory input coming from the world, and from your level of conscious awareness, you will find, if you observe it, that there's not a lot of constancy. The thing that makes our minds seem pretty sane from one moment to the next is, one, we get transfixed by our inner chatter and we don't notice how much change there's going on. Two, there are sirens. Two, there's also our fixation with the outside world. The outside world can seem pretty constant. This bowl can seem pretty constant with the ringer. This room, this lamp can seem pretty constant. But when we actually observe the way each object feels, the impression it leaves, the excitement it creates, the amount of attention we give to anything in our lives, we'll notice that everything we accumulate, we focus on, we crave, we acquire, the way we perceive it, the way we appreciate it, the way we feel about it, the way it's even appearing to us, changes. I remember a funny kind of incident where somebody who I worked with one-on-one many years ago came into my house to have a meeting. I meet with people one-on-one and they congratulated me on a change in the furniture. The only issue was that that piece had moved out the second week they started coming and it was a year into it. So they had spent a year seeing the old piece of furniture that was first there a year ago and not seeing the fact that it had changed 11 months earlier. 
And we do that all the time with perception. When I first got this uh, iPhone, the 6 is pretty big. I thought, oh, wow, this is pretty big. I can finally see what's going on on this thing. <laughs> Think of the possibilities. About, about uh, oh, two weeks later, this is a, just another thing. So, even though objects in the world, people in the world, places in the world, things in the world can seem very consistent, the way we relate, the way we feel about things, the way we emotionally react, the way uh, is constantly changing. Even the amount, the way we actually perceive, unless we observe very closely we will believe or assume constancy where there often is none. Now, given this constant change that's going on internally, the fact that objects, when we first acquired them, release a lot of dopamine, which creates a lot of excitement and a feeling of power and a feeling of strength, and then very quickly, that object that you acquire, if you're a shopaholic, you might notice that the best feeling is the, I gather, the feeling of swiping the credit card, but by the time you get home with the object, it no longer has any excitement to it. So there's a recognition that uh, if we see the or understand the constancy of change or the lack of constancy, then there's a second profound wisdom that comes about, which is uh, the wisdom that no matter what it is, we acquire, accumulate, seek out, latch onto, grab, chase after, it will ultimately be unsatisfying. Anything that we pin our hopes on of rescuing us, whether it's a person, a place, a thing, an object, because it's something that we don't have inherently, because it's something that we have to acquire, it will first release a lot of dopamine. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter you release when you get something. So, the left hemisphere of your brain, which is where you spend most of your conscious life, it's actually hardwired towards dopamine activation. Your left hemisphere was the realm of thoughts and plans and schemes and achievements, and it wants you to accomplish things because it wants the high of dopamine, which is very powerful and very short-lasting, and then you need another rush. And it's all based on thoughts and narratives and acquiring things that we don't have. So this is a pretty already profound insight that if we realize that while that no matter what we acquire, accumulate, our internal experience will change. We will not have constant happiness or joy in relation to virtually anything that we latch onto, accumulate, acquire, grab onto, seek out. And that, therefore, we will have a certain amount of dissatisfaction. And then the final great wisdom from this insight is that there isn't even any core, lasting, true, 
self. We all have an, a sense of self in any moment, but that identity is shifting slowly over time. Even the stories, the beliefs, the views, the feelings that we identify as this is me, if we could detach from the inner chatter which distracts us and simply observe the quality of our internal experience, we'd see that there's no lasting identity or internal state. So this is the wisdom of impermanence. The idea that you observe long enough, you will see constant flux and change. This is largely the insight that is practiced by a school of teachers that fall under the title of Vipassana. Vipassana is a school of Buddhist teaching that focuses on simple, bare awareness without trying to keep any object in mind, just opening to your internal present time experience without any judgment and just watching. Just see how your feelings, your moods, your body states, your breath, your um, the thoughts, everything are constantly in flux. And you will, have, you will be practicing Vipassana or bare insight, and you will have the great insight. And I'll talk about how that can play out in our lives in a moment. But what is the other group? If one group is based on Vipassana and seeing impermanence, there's another group that focuses on, instead of looking for impermanence, they know that every single state of mind is caused, that the mind is a causal environment. What does this mean? It means that while human beings have a certain, we each have a certain degree of inevitable suffering, as the Buddha said in the First Noble Truths, we're all going to grow old, sick, experience death, loss, separation, sorrow, lamentation, grief. There's all of us are going to experience emotional states that we haven't brought on by our actions that simply are the inevitable uh, experiences of life. But beyond those inevitable disappointments and difficulties, there's a large then additional bulk of suffering that is completely brought on by ourselves, by how we use the mind, and can be alleviated. So we can, some people delineate the first by saying pain, which is inevitable and suffering. I don't like that, because the Buddha didn't use two different words. He said one was the stress of inevitable change, which there's nothing we can do about. But then there's the stress of resistance, trying to avoid taking things personally, believing that, oh, I'm experiencing this because I, or, or viewing it uh, like I can escape, or adding endless internal narratives about how it's unfair, or whatever it is we do that we add on. So the second group of suffering which the Dukkha, Buddha, the Buddha called Dukkha Viparinama, the 
the not inevitable suffering. This is the suffering that can be alleviated if we let go of trying to accumulate peace of mind. We let go of trying to chase down and gather what he called the worldly winds of fame, people-pleasing, sensual pleasures that are short-lasting, and uh, fame. If we let go of those and we simply turn the mind towards that which is always available to us, that we don't have to accumulate, that we don't have to acquire, that we don't have to seek out, we look to the ingredients that we are all born with, those, using those ingredients, we don't have to suffer needlessly. This is very much now in vogue in the positive psychologists who, uh, uh, I'm going to read you uh, some, the great positive psychologists like Seligman, Fredrickson, Leah Bomorski, Sheldon, Coffey, um, they all have studied and crunched the numbers based on baseline happiness, clinical research, and as written by uh, Leo Bromorski, counter to lay ideas of what creates well-beings, a person's circumstances, their nationality, marital standard, status, their level of education, their wealth, account for only 10% of individual differences in happiness. The most promising factor affecting change in happiness are intentional activities, gratitude reflections, active kindness, developing new skills, meditating on positive feelings. And that's from two clinical reports, one, the promise of sustainable happiness and the how, why, how, why, what, when, and where of happiness. So, uh, strange titles, but I like them. The idea, if you noticed, when she writes, the most promising factor, and then she lists gratitude reflections, acts of kindness, etc. These are not things that you are born missing, or at any moment in your life don't have. The key to lasting happiness is turning, or chronic peace of mind, is turning to what is always available. You, the attention you can give to others, the care you can give to yourself, the kindness and appreciation you can express to life. Those do not trigger the wallop and the fun of dopamine. They don't give you that big reward of, I've just got a great survival. I've just found the greatest person to hook up with, and now my life is fixed and solved. It's not about accumulating anything. It's about unconditional factors that are always available. Kindness, appreciation, care. You don't have to buy, purchase, do anything. It's simply turning to what's available to you and using it in the spirit of care. Now, guess what, though? Even though that doesn't release serotonin, that actually activates the right hemisphere of your brain, and that triggers the release of something that feels very pleasant over a long period of time. 
It's called serotonin. You might have heard of it. Virtually every single antidepressant delivers it, other than the antidepressants that deliver dopamine. So what happens is, well, dopamine is very fast. It comes about when you acquire or accumulate or grab, you win somebody's approval, you win an object, you, you uh, gamble, you purchase, you, you consume food. It's always about getting something that we don't have. We're rewarded with dopamine, which is a spike of feeling of invincibility. And it's the same neurotransmitter that's released when we consume cocaine and speed, and it feels really, really good. When you have a great idea, when you're thinking a lot and you love your thoughts, i.e. you've taken cocaine, <laughs> guess what you are thriving on? You are thriving on a continual blast of dopamine that's artificial, because dopamine is not meant to last for more than short spurts before it subsides. That's why people keep on taking hits of crack or cocaine because the dopamine rush is very fleeting. On the other hand, the dopamine rush that's continually released at the beginning of a relationship or when you acquire something, over time your brain will habituate and release less and less dopamine until it will release very little and you will feel, hey, what the hell happened? I thought I was in a great relationship. And now I'm not thrilled with everything they say and everything they do doesn't make me smile and suddenly I'm, I'm feeling like maybe this wasn't the wisest choice in my life to cohabitate in the first month or whatever. So, now fortunately, if you're lucky and you find somebody or some, uh, a way of giving of yourself, not trying to accumulate your happiness, by, but by trying to base your peace of mind on altruism, kindness to yourself and others, appreciation rather than believing you're missing something from life. What that will do is very slowly increase the level of serotonin that you have and also a secondary neurotransmitter that helps in the, as we fall in love over many years, oxytocin. So those two, you will never get a spike of, and in fact, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, you will never notice that your serotonin levels have gone up. But if you do the right practices slowly over time, they will create a feeling of well-being. Now, the Buddha called the spike of happiness that comes about with dopamine, he called that sukha, and that means pleasure, very short-term happiness. And if you look at the relationship chart in Jonathan Haidt's research, about two months and a half into a new relationship, that, that curve starts, it soars up and then it's, it goes down. But meanwhile, that, that the serotonin, which incrementally creeps up as you give people your attention, you show up for a relationship, you develop care for someone, you develop a sense of concern for other people and yourself, what happens is that slowly creeps up. So there's this really kind of awkward period in any relationship where the, the dopamine is ended, but the serotonin, the oxytocin hasn't crept up. That's about three or four months in. If you could make it to about the 
six or seven month period, you might just have enough still little spikes of dopamine and enough serotonin that you begin to feel at home and safe, and yet at the same time you still have joy when you get laid and stuff like that. <laughs> so there's two different, and this the Buddha called the serotonin, he called it things like upekka, equanimity, a feeling of being safe, at ease, open, at home. It's not like you feel any great rush or any sense of complete power, or it's not even focused on ideas because it's a right hemisphere thing, so it doesn't speak to you in language. It's a feeling of I'm safe here. That feeling when you get home after a long day and you close the front door and you might lie on your favorite couch and you might have a cat or something that walks around or you see something that feels at home, as, you know, dog, you might... And that feeling of being, oh, I'm safe now, that's the serotonin. And that's something that you acquire very slowly after a long period of opening to your life, as it is without needing to acquire or accumulate anything. So this practice of seeing and working with causation is very much a practice of concentration, of focusing the mind on reflections and objects that develop peace of turning away from needless stressors and things we want to accumulate and focusing on that which we have, focusing on that which is skillful. And the Buddha referred to these practices not only as concentration but right effort. Now, we need to have both of the practices I talked about. Seeing impermanence through bare insight is really, really good when it comes to opening up and holding and turning towards old emotions that we haven't faced and addressed. The key to working with emotions is to be with them without any judgment, feeling them in the body, and observing them as they arise and pass, allowing them to show themselves, to give them a safe container, and then to allow them to pass. The strengths of concentration and focusing the mind on skillful objects is that that is the tools we use when we're feeling panic or anxiety or when we're feeling enormous amount of agitation in the mind. Simply by learning how to pull the mind away from triggers and focusing it on objects that create peace, for instance, reflections of gratitude, reflections of generosity, metaphrases, feeling and observing the breath for long periods, Concentration is exceptionally useful in overcoming panic and anxiety and spikes of agitation. So, if you overuse concentration, if your practice is always based on focusing on the breath or bringing your mind back again and again to positive reflections, what might happen is you might develop what's known as a spiritual bypass. You might try to use your meditation as a way to avoid painful emotions that need to be addressed and felt. People do use the breath 
as a way out of feeling their feelings, of being with dark emotions, sadness, loneliness, grief that need to be processed. On the other hand, if you're only doing emotion recognition and sitting with deep, dark emotional experiences, and you don't have any way to cultivate states of peace and joy through concentration practice, through awareness of the breath and metta, you're not going to have a very fun spiritual practice. You're going to be like uh, a goth. Uh, you'll be able to form the Buddhist goth school. <laughs> I don't want any happiness. You speak in a Russian accent. I don't want this happiness. I want to sit in my pain and watch it arise and pass and know that it is all fleeting and it's all disappointing and there's nothing to get excited about. I'm of Russian ancestry and that's what all of my 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 relatives sounded like to me. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so um, a couple of now implications uh, of these two schools and how they we can practice them and really important wisdom practices. The first is that in one piece of wisdom the Buddha called Hidipakiyata, he noted that and the Paticca he noticed that feelings always come before thoughts and cravings and obsessions. So before you have an obsessive thought, before you get latched onto a worry or an obsessive fixation, there's always a moment where it appears first in the body as a feeling. Now, to the Vipassana people, they noted that the Buddha correctly said if we can stay present with that feeling and just observe it without allowing our mind to be pulled off to the thoughts that come about, we can actually diffuse craving and obsessive worry before it starts. For instance, suppose every day before you go to work you have a donut and that you find yourself before the donut store craving. Before all the thoughts come in, when you stand at the, the donut shop, just feel that feeling of I want a donut in the body and stay with it and observe it and just watch it arise and pass. It will rise and it will pass. So that's one way you can get through addictions and get through obsessive thoughts. Turn back again and again to the body, find where the stress is, observe it, and allow it to pass. On the other hand, if you were practicing in the right concentration school of knowing the mind is a causal environment, what you would do is when you saw that feeling of craving arise, what you would do is focus your attention on something else. If you remember the famous Walter Michelle Mush, marshmallow test that he did with kids, where he gave kids a marshmallow and said, if you can wait five minutes, I'll give you a second marshmallow. And some kids could, and some kids couldn't, and the ones that, that could was wait the five minutes had excellent abilities to succeed in life, and they showed they could uh, override, you know, they could uh, withstand impulses. He noticed when they videoed the children, the single difference between the kids that could withstand the desire to eat the marshmallow and the ones that couldn't was the ones that succeeded in the test simply looked away from the marshmallow. 
They looked at something else. There wasn't any secret power or willpower that they had. There wasn't something about their character. They simply learned very young that rather than trying to fight their cravings, their obsessions, and their worries, to change what they were focusing their attention on. So that's the way that right concentration works. If you see a feeling arising that's going to trigger obsession or craving or fixation on someone or something, the moment you are alerted to it in the body, focus on something else that won't create fixation. You can see how that could create a spiritual bypass, because if every time you start to feel a feeling, you switch your thought somewhere else, you could use it as a spiritual bypass to not understand what the underlying emotion is. But sometimes we need to do it. If you have panic attacks and you're in a subway and the subway suddenly lurches to a stop and the lights go out, you're probably better off thinking about something that brings you peace of mind rather than looking around at all the people standing nearby you and looking at their expressions and trying to just withstand the feelings that arise and pass. So there's times to do both. Another important piece of wisdom is, uh, I'll, I'll close with these two, are shunyata, which means appreciating emptiness, and dhammata, which means appreciating naturalness. So appreciating emptiness is simply appreciating the space between our thoughts. The thoughts are what trigger the dopamine, the sense of power. We identify generally with our thoughts. A lot of people want their thoughts to be uploaded to computers so that they believe when they physically die, they hope, well, my thoughts will be in some Macintosh somewhere, and maybe that would be good enough. What? Yeah. So the idea is, though, that we identify with our thoughts, and we fetishize our thoughts, and we really believe our thoughts are the solution to everything. And the Buddha taught that actually there's so much to be gained from appreciating the space between our thoughts, the times when the mind is quiet, what he called pasadi, that actually we don't identify with those spaces of quietude when we're focused on a task, when we're riding our bike, when we're sitting by the water, when we're lying in the grass and just observing the feeling of the breeze, all of those times when we're not thinking, we tend to devalue. But actually, if we learn to pay attention to them, the thoughts trigger dopamine, but the spaces between the thoughts trigger serotonin. So we are actually building our peace of mind if we move from fixating on thoughts to fixating or paying attention to just the feeling states between the inner chatter. We're moving from left hemisphere to right hemisphere awareness. The people who are in the school of uh, Vipassana, they just believe that if you practice their attention, you let go of of the future or the past, you just open to the present, that that will naturally arise. They believe that's a natural quality of the mind. The concentration folks believe you have to actually focus on the breath or focus on something in the body for that inner peace to develop. It doesn't just come about on its own. Everything has a cause.
Finally, naturalness, Dhammata, the Buddha noted that just a simple, beautiful state of being alive, noting the sensations of having a body, sitting, breathing, hearing, can bring about a great sense of peace of mind. Again, serotonin. However, the two groups differ about how you can appreciate the simple beauty of just being, waking up, sitting, eating without, you know, scarfing it down, just the very simple practices of being a human being. The school of Vipassana tends to believe that that's, again, something that happens naturally if we open our awareness to the present. We don't allow our minds to slip to the past or future, and we drop judgment, then we naturally appreciate existence. The concentration school believes that that's something that has to be cultivated. How do we cultivate it? Through focusing the mind again and again on the body, the breath, thoughts of appreciation, generosity, gratitude for what we have in our life. So for the first part of this meditation, we're going to be stilling the mind by focusing our awareness on an object that is presently available that when you keep it in your awareness it will help you quiet the inner chatter or busyness or just the jumpiness of the mind. This is known in Buddhist lore as an anchor, like an anchor for a boat. An anchor in awareness or meditation keeps your mind from floating too far away from the present. So the anchor should be something that is effortlessly available. I'm sure you're aware that many people use the sensations of the breath for their anchor. If you're going to do that, try to find a specific area of the body where the sensations of breathing are very clear. That could be the tip of the nose, the slight expansion of the chest and shoulders, the belly, abdomen. And one practice that helps with watching the breath and using it as an anchor to still the mind is to count the inhalations and exhalations. So I like to count when I'm doing it, one on the in, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out, five on the in and then back down, four on the exhalation. So we're counting from one to five and back down with one, three, and five always on the inhalation. Now, fortunately, this room is a very loud room, which makes it very easy to use sounds as a meditation object. You can just listen to the city sounds without visualizing what's creating any noise. Just listen to the city as if it's a piece of strange music, not holding on to any moment, 
not criticizing, but just keeping the sounds in your awareness. A third meditation object would be the lights that flicker behind the eyelids and the ambient sensations of contact you're making with the ground. A fourth meditation object could be the phrases of metta. <coughs> metta are kind, kindness phrases, and you can choose your own. You can make up your own. They generally are very short, and they're not about so much the words as the feeling behind the words, which we're trying to sustain. May I be peaceful. May all beings be peaceful. And with meta phrases, you just repeat the phrase as often as you need to keep intrusive, overbearing thoughts like worries, obsessive fixations on people or fears. You just repeat the phrase enough that it keeps you present. Finally, it's very much of a part of the practice to fail, to have the thoughts become very devious and pull us away from the present moment. They have their ways of creeping up and luring us into a fantasy in which we're no longer present at all. When that happens, the key is to be very, very patient, without any frustration, without any judgment, without any sense at all that you've done something wrong, and to simply note what kind of thought is very tempting to your awareness to nibble on. And next time that kind of thought appears, see if you can develop a little bit more awareness of it, note it, and then keep your awareness on your anchor a little bit more in the forefront of your mind.
So for the second part of the meditation, we're going to let go of the concentration object, and then we're going to do an inside practice. And for today, we can develop awareness of feeling. So allow your mind just to stay present amidst all the sounds, breathing sensation, body sensations, the lights flickering behind the eyelids, everything that's available to you. And eventually you might notice that you'll have non-verbal feelings that will rise and pass. Feelings are sometimes known as intuition or gut feelings. They're the way the emotional mind, the right hemisphere, speaks to us through the body, through the moods. So, for instance, if you're anxious, you might notice the muscles in the back of your neck will tighten. If you're missing someone or feel an absence, you might feel your chest feel hollow. Fear often feels like tightness in the belly. Anger might feel like clenched muscles or in the fists or in the jaw, a tightening of the forehead. When we're happy, we might notice a lightness in the front of the body, an opening up of the chest. Confusion might be the mind jumping about from one thing to another. So the key to this practice is to, for the rest of the meditation, when thoughts arise and pass, just note them and allow the mind to stay present. But when a feeling arises, a feeling of Especially you can observe the front of the body or the quality of your attention outside of your thoughts. How do you know when you feel sad, worried, bored, tired? How do you notice or know when you feel happy or peaceful. Just constantly know what basic mood or feeling state you're in. What we're doing is paying attention to a large part <coughs> of the minds that we're often unaware of the emotional mind that speaks to us without words, but through physical states, shifts of attention, shifts of mood.
All right, so we're going to begin the transition from the meditation, and as always, I try to encourage taking a moment to reflect on the benefits and virtues of your practice. The Buddha wholeheartedly recommended this. Meditation is one of the most skillful and utterly blameless activities. Not only does it help both mental and physical well-being, but if you have a spiritual practice, you're not using up the world's resources, you're not harming anyone else, you're not addicting yourself to a substance, you have cultivated a source of unconditionally available peace, which means you don't have to compete with anyone else. When we have a practice, we tend to act less reactively with other people, perhaps with a little bit more patience, because we have internal, greater reservoirs of internal patience. So our practice is not just to our benefit, but to the benefit of all beings. So keeping that in mind, it doesn't matter if any meditation goes smoothly, or if it's difficult, or a challenge, just setting the intention to meditate is virtuous. And following through with sitting sets a very positive standard in your life. So when you open your eyes, do it really slowly, so that when sight starts to force its way into awareness, if it you just open your eyes, it'll come in like a flood, and it will overwhelm what awareness you've developed of the body and the breath and the moods. So see if you can slowly open your eyes and reintegrate sight into body awareness, breath awareness, feeling awareness. 